Howdy. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be for the morning, John chapter 4. And uh, I do want to encourage you guys, uh, starting next Sunday, as we've mentioned, is our Global Impact Week. This is going to be a week where we will really focus on uh, what God is doing all around the world. And so whether you think that you are a person who's going to head overseas uh, down the line or not, uh, you and I are called to be a part of God's great commission to spread the message of Jesus Christ around the world and make disciples. So I would really encourage you guys to come participate in that. It's not just Sunday, uh, but all throughout the week there's going to be uh, events and this year's particular focus is on uh, how we can reach out into uh, the Muslim world. And so uh, we're going to talk about that. We'll have uh, missionaries who are doing that as well as people uh, who, uh, like it was mentioned earlier by Sarah, she mentioned a man named Fuad Masri is going to come and speak. And Masri was a Muslim man and he has trusted in Jesus Christ. And so he's going to give his testimony. So I hope you guys will be a part of that um, and continue praying as we go through that week. You may or may not know we've got probably 12 to 15 former students, people who are just like you, who are now serving the Lord overseas in three different places in East Asia, in what we call trade winds, which is a Muslim context, and then in Greece. And then each summer, we've got 40 to 50 students uh, who go on summer trips as well. And so we would encourage you to consider those as we go throughout the week. But uh, that'll be coming up starting next week. I hope you guys will be a part of it. All right, John chapter four, I'm going to start at the beginning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we proclaim the name of Jesus, who is high and lifted up because he died on the cross to pay our penalty and rose again, defeated death and defeated sin. We're grateful that through Jesus Christ and our faith in him, we have eternal life. And so we look forward to an eternity with you rather than an eternity separated from you. And as we've been talking this semester about heaven and hell, Father, the reality of the spiritual realm has come into focus for many of us. And God, we desire not to live in a way in which we um, minimize those realities around us, but instead we pray, open our eyes. Let us look at the people around us as men and women who are eternal, made in the image of God, and who need to know you. Pray as we study your word, you would give us wisdom and understanding. I pray, open up our minds to understand it, remove distractions, and Father, I pray, move in our hearts that we would believe. I pray, remove our doubts and our fears and our objections, and then Father, empower us through your spirit in our bodies to do your will. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I have to admit to you guys, uh, and this this surprises people uh, because I am a person who speaks publicly, but uh, I am naturally more of an introverted person. It's not that I hate people, right? It's not like I'm sitting up here going, I I hate you all, right? Go away. But uh, naturally... Uh, often given the choice, I would find that I want to withdraw sometimes and I I draw energy and strength from being alone, uh, from reading a good book, uh, from studying something, from kind of being quiet. That's where I draw my energy and my strength. And so as a natural introvert, there are times that I have to be careful not to treat people uh, as a nuisance. So for example, if I'm on an airplane, one of my favorite things, I'll just be honest, uh, on an airplane is when uh, I end up getting the road to myself, right? Nobody else is around. And so I confess that if I'm sitting there and I see someone else come down the row, uh, I feel a twinge of disappointment if they begin to sit in the seat that was reserved, all three that were reserved for me, right? Uh, I am naturally that kind of person. Uh, and yet in my family, I see there are other people, and this may be some of you, that are more, much more extroverted. Uh, my grandfather for example, is one of these people. Uh, a few years ago, I took him to an Aggie game, A&M versus Oklahoma, and he is a Sooner. And uh, don't hiss my grandfather, all right? <laughs> the man is 90 years old. What is wrong with you? Okay. Okay, my grandfather is a Sooner, but here's the thing. Now, I know when, when we got there, he was wearing his Sooner uh, uh, kind of whatever you call it, his shirt, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the people around uh, kind of did the same thing. You, oh, there's a Sooner in our section. You know, I had my Aggie shirt on. Uh, but the deal is, by the end of that game, uh, everybody in our section was friends with him, right? They're like high-fiving him. He's talking to him. People are like, your grandfather's so awesome, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he just naturally uh, makes friends. Another quick story, the weekend that I graduated from college, uh, we went to a restaurant and my grandparents were with us. And we sat down in this restaurant, uh, began to order, and my grandmother got up to go use the restroom. And while she was gone, uh, my grandfather got into a conversation uh, with the owner of the restaurant and invited her to sit down at our table where my grandmother had been sitting. And so my grandmother comes back from the bathroom, and there's this lady sitting at our table, and my grandfather's talking to her, and she just kind of stands there. And uh, we said, sorry, 
you know, she took your seat and she just kind of goes, I'm used to it. This happens all the time. He just would make friends everywhere he went. And so uh, incredibly extroverted. It may be that you relate to one or the other of uh, those extremes. It may be that you're kind of somewhere in the middle. Maybe you're a person that you derive your energy and your strength from being around other people. You're the life of the party. Maybe you're a person who you derive your energy and strength from being alone. Uh, But I've noticed that uh, wherever you fall on that spectrum, I think uh, all of us have a tendency not to see people often the way that God calls us to see people. All right, so if you're extroverted, your challenge may be uh, that you look for approval and significance from the approval of others. And so if you experience rejection, man, that's devastating for you. And so your temptation is to try to always keep on the good side of everybody and always say and do things that make people happy rather than and doing the things that uh, they really need. And on the other hand, if you're an introvert, uh, your tendency, again, is maybe to view people as they're they're kind of a nuisance or they're just sort of in your way. They're an obstacle to getting to where you need to be or to doing what you need to do. And so I think all of us struggle to see people as God wants us to see people. And yet, as we look at the scriptures, and particularly as we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we see a person who really breaks those boxes, Because Jesus is a person that you often will see him go away and be alone and spend time with God, but then you'll also see him come and he will spend hours or even days ministering and caring for the people around him. And it seems like Jesus saw people as they were meant to be seen, as men and women made in the image of God, who were eternal people, who were destined, as we've talked about all through this semester, destined either for an eternity with God or an eternity separate from God. And so Jesus sees people with genuine compassion and love. Book of uh, Matthew chapter 9, looking at a crowd, it says, Jesus, seeing the people, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he looked out and and that word compassion, it just kind of means that his insides moved, like his heart was moved for these people. He didn't see the people as, hey, I can go be the funny guy, the life of the party. I can derive my pleasure from them. Nor did he go, you know, I I need to get away from these people. But instead he looks around and he takes it and he says, God loves these people and they need someone to love them and shepherd them and care for them. And as we've talked about heaven and hell again this semester, one of the things we keep coming back to is this concept of the eternality of human beings. Nobody that you and I are around is simply mortal. And we're going to talk about that again as we move through this passage. Everybody that we are around is an eternal person intended to spend eternity with God. And yet many, sadly, will spend eternity apart from him. And all men and women need to know God through Jesus Christ. And that's how Jesus sees people. So we're going to look at this passage, John 4. And this passage is going to challenge us because this is one incident in the life of Jesus where we see how Jesus interacts with people. And it challenges us then if we believe in the realities of heaven and hell, if we believe that it is true that Jesus died and rose again, to bring eternal life, if we really believe that that is true, then what the scripture calls us to do is to go out into our communities, into the world, and share the message of heaven, that there is a God who has provided life. And yet, if you're like me, you often kind of get freaked out by that or scared 
or nervous or you just don't put it on your priority list like you should. What we see with Jesus is Jesus moves toward this woman. And it's not like a program he has to check off, right? I had my evangelism time. Right now I'll go have my Bible time, right? And then my missions time. But instead, in everywhere Jesus is, he looks around at the people around him. And he says, how can I bring the message of life to these people? How can I love them as God would love them? All right, so that's where we're going in John 4. And we're going to see some principles that will help us in that process so that this, this evangelism thing isn't something that uh, becomes like a big burden or a scary deal to all of us. But instead, we look at it and go, how did Jesus do it? Right, and the first thing we see is this. Jesus' example calls us to pursue people boldly. Look at verses 1 through 9. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, let me explain a little bit of the background, because that's going to help us understand what's going on. Jesus has been doing ministry down in Judea, and let me show you guys a map here. Uh, Okay, you can see Judea kind of on the southern end of Israel. This is where Jesus has been doing ministry, but he's come uh, under some pressure from the Pharisees. His ministry is beginning to get public, and he's making all these disciples, so he decides to withdraw for a time back into Galilee. Now, Galilee is way up here, right, in the northern part of Israel, and you notice here's Judea down here. In between is this region called Samaria, Um, and you can see these little lines here. These are roads. These are two major roads, and then you've got some smaller roads, And obviously what you can see is when Jesus is headed back to Galilee, the quickest way is just to take this road right here, or maybe this road over here, uh, straight through Samaria into Galilee. And now what's interesting is that is not, though, what most Jewish people did when they needed to get from Judea to Galilee. They would actually go around. So say you're over here in Jericho and you need to get up to Galilee. You might go all the way over here across Perea, up here, and back over to Galilee. Now, the reason they did that was, as the text tells us, Jews don't really have dealings with Samaritans. You need to understand who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans were uh, essentially considered half-breeds. These were the offspring of uh, Israelite men and women who had then married with Assyrians back in the 8th century BC when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The Israelites intermarried with the Assyrians and they produced this race of people that are called Samaritans. And they were viewed as half-breeds and they worshipped even uh, in a false temple in Samaria. And that comes into play later in the text. So you can see how the Jews who worship in Jerusalem, who are pure-blooded people, they don't like the Samaritans. All right, so Jesus goes out of his comfort zone takes a risk and goes straight through this area and he sits down in this town, Sychar, and he sits down by a well that it says is Jacob's well. It was on the plot of land that the patriarch Jacob had lived on. All right, he sits down, it's the middle of the day and as he's sitting down, here comes this woman to the well. She walks up, she's carrying her water jar, she's gonna get some water from the well. Now, one thing you have to notice, one detail of the story is this, that the woman comes at midday and she comes all by herself. 
Now that in and of itself is unusual. Usually women would come in groups, right? You guys, uh, that still kind of happens today, right? Ladies, if you need to go to the bathroom or something like that, it's a big group, right? You don't go somewhere like that all by yourself. Well, that's what the women would do. They would get into a big group and say, let's go to the well, grab your jar. We're going to go get some water. And they would do that all together. Here comes this woman, middle of the day, heat of the day, all by herself. That should tell you something. Uh, And that is, she may not have a lot of friends, She may not be the kind of person that wants to be seen at peak hours at the well. Here she comes. She walks up, and Jesus looks at her and says, give me a drink. Now, this is an interesting beginning to a conversation. The reason is, as you look back throughout the Old Testament, um, you'll notice that Jacob met his wife at a well. Isaac met his wife at a well. So wells are kind of like the pickup location of uh, the ancient world, all right? Imagine like you're in a grocery store and you're kind of standing there and in the produce section, guys, you see a cute girl and you go, uh, you like the uh, honey crisps, right? Can you, can you hand me one of those? Shop for apples a lot around here? Haven't seen you before, right? That's the kind of thing that this could be interpreted as, all right? Jesus is sitting by a well. Wells are known as kind of the place where uh, men pick up women, and he says, give me a drink. Now, the woman is shocked by this, and understandably so, not only because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, but because he's a man and she's a woman, and they're alone at this well, and Jesus says, give me a drink. And so she responds, well, how, how is it that you talk to me? So what you need to see first and foremost is Jesus moves forward in a risky and bold interaction with this woman. He pursues her boldly. He risks his reputation as a teacher and a rabbi. He risks his disciples, which later they do, thinking, what in the world are you doing talking to this lady? He pursues her, even though she is not, we find out, the the model of of a superior citizen in their society. But Jesus isn't concerned with that. That's what's amazing. Jesus isn't concerned with that. He sees the woman, and he sees her need to know him. And so he initiates with her. He begins the conversation. Sharing the gospel is something that takes risk. The reality is that many of us, if not most of us, will risk something if there is a benefit to us. Right? Uh, some of you have watched a bunch of reality shows, right? And you see things like Fear Factor, where people will do disgusting things, right? Eat bugs or snails or whatever in order to get money at the end of the show. They will risk their health and their life and their reputation and all of these things to get $50,000. And you go, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I, I wouldn't do that, right? And uh, the reality is that many of us would. When I was in uh, junior high, no, I'm sorry, when I was in college, I worked every New Year's at a junior high retreat for a church. They called it the Great American Countdown, or GAC, right? And uh, what they would do is they would hand out to these junior high kids, they'd give all of the leaders, college leaders, what they called GAC bucks, right? It was just kind of funny money. And uh, the junior high kids would do things to get the GAC bucks. They might memorize a verse, they might do something kind of silly, um, and you would give them these GAC bucks, and they would use them at the end of the weekend to buy real stuff. Parents would donate like TVs and clothes and all kinds of cool stuff. And so these kids would use this to buy real stuff. And when you're in junior high, man, uh, if you've got your own like money to buy like a pair of clown shoes or something like that's the height 
of your life, right? So these kids would do anything they could to get this money. And I'm telling you, I saw kids dive into uh, like 30 degree water in the middle of the winter to get some gack bucks that were at the center. I saw kids put their own heads in the toilet and flush it, all right? I saw kids eat some, I saw junior high kids declare their love to a girl that they had a crush on in front of everybody so that they could get 10,000 gack bucks, right? And the reality is that we don't change a lot as we get older, right? We're willing to take risks if it benefits us. I might change my major to something that seems risky. I might invest capital in a business. Guys, I might uh, take a step and ask that girl out because even though it's risky, uh, the reward seems worth it. And yet often I think when it comes to sharing the gospel, we don't pursue boldly because uh, we're afraid, right? I'm going to experience a little bit of rejection or maybe that person won't like me as much anymore. And the truth is, I'll just be honest with you, I have never really experienced real persecution when I've shared the gospel. Really haven't. I've had people say, I don't want to talk about that. I've had people maybe kind of withdraw from me relationally. But even when we're not going to experience real persecution, we, we often are afraid to take the risk. Even though we'll take risks for ourselves, we're afraid. And I think it's because on a daily basis, we do not always really fully get or think about the eternal reality of the fact that the person sitting in front of us is a spiritual person, and yet Jesus does. And so he's willing to take a risk to his reputation in order to talk to this woman. So he pursues people boldly. Second thing he does is he sees the spiritual in the mundane. All right, look at verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we'll go through verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, notice what Jesus does. He takes a very normal situation. It's, it's, he's asked for a drink of water. And uh, so she's shocked that he's talking. And he goes, you know, if you'd really known who I was, you, you would have asked me for living water. Now, the woman doesn't get that at first. Living water is also an expression for like a stream that's moving. It's kind of moving fresh water. And Jesus to her seems to be saying, I would have given you even better water, fresh water. Now she's still a little confused. Where are you going to get it? You don't have anything to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to go and get this special magic water, right, that you have? Jesus says, uh, if you drink this, you're going to thirst again. If I give you water, you will never thirst again. Right? And he moves the discussion to a spiritual plane. He says, lady, what you need is not really a jar full of water. That's what you think you need. What you need is life. And water really just represents, especially in the Gospel of John, life. And the life that God gives through Jesus is life that will never end. And so he's telling her, if you accept what I'm offering, You'll, you'll never thirst again. You won't have to be preoccupied like you are now with where is this going to come from? How will God provide? 
What's God going to do in my life and my reputation and my relationships? Instead, he's saying, I'm going to offer you life that will spring up from within. And so what Jesus does, without being super awkward, is he turns the conversation to spiritual things because he always has salvation and spiritual things on his mind. It's not like this is a part of Jesus' life that he checks off at a particular time, but he's always thinking, how can I bring the life that I have to the people around me? He sees the spiritual and the mundane. I wonder if you and I fail to do that. If we just see people often as what they are on face value. There's a famous experiment that was done probably about four or five years ago uh, in a subway station in Washington, D.C. The Washington Post set up this experiment where they, during rush hour, they planted a violinist uh, in this subway station. And some of you may have seen this. Uh, The man uh, pulled out his violin and began to play just like a thousand street musicians that you have seen over time. And he played for about 45 minutes, different classical music. And often, uh, as you've seen this uh, in subway stations and all over the place, people just walked by. Few people dropped in money. Few people stopped and listened for a few minutes. But for the most part, people just ignored him. Now, what those people didn't know was that the man standing there was a man named Joshua Bell. And uh, Joshua Bell is one of the greatest violin players in the world. Uh, He was playing in the subway stop on a three and a half million dollar Stradivarius violin. And uh, the night before, he had actually sold out the Boston Symphony Hall at uh, $100 a seat were the relatively cheap seats. Usually he makes about $100,000 an hour for playing his violin. You guys are like, why did I quit the band, right? This guy, okay. Usually he makes about $100,000 an hour. That day in the subway station, he made $32.17. Only one person recognized him and stopped and listened. The other uh, person who didn't recognize him that was most interested in his music was actually a three-year-old kid uh, who stopped to listen and was just in awe. And uh, his mom blocked the view because they had to leave and took him out of the subway station. So right in the middle of the station, you've got this unbelievable reality that uh, one of the best classical musicians in the world is standing there and people just walk by. I think we often do that spiritually as well. We don't see what's really going on behind the surface. That that angry, frustrated person that I work with has deep needs and those needs can only be met in Jesus Christ. That the roommate who is insecure and constantly needs my approval and attention, isn't just a distraction from my studies, but is the person made in the image of God who needs Jesus Christ. And Jesus sees that. He sees behind the surface. Say, what is this woman's real need? He calls us to do that as well. To open your eyes and think about the people in your life. I'll confess, I'm often guilty, like at the grocery store or whatever, uh, the clerks, the people around me, uh, I tend to just see them as tools, means to an end, right? I pay my money, uh, they give me my groceries, and I go on my way. But uh, my eyes have been opened to the reality of the people around me more and more as I've been married, because my wife is uh, excellent at looking around and noticing the human beings standing around her. And I'm not kidding you, I go to the grocery store now, and people tell me to say hello to my wife. I walk in, and they're like, how's your sweet wife? How's she doing? And they talk to me about her, and uh, they don't know my name. They don't care, right? But they know her because she's invested in them. And often all it is is just simply looking people in the eye, saying hello, asking about their day, talking to them for a moment. And over time, it develops these opportunities to share the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus does. 
So he sees the spiritual and the mundane. C.S. Lewis, we shared this quote earlier in the semester, but I'll share it again. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So Jesus calls us to see the spiritual realities behind the mundane events in our life. Thirdly, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Verses 15 to 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right, Jesus obviously knows information about this woman from a supernatural perspective that she's not aware he knows. And she picks up that uh, he is a prophet pretty quickly. All right, but what's interesting is Jesus highlights an area of need in this woman's life that she is a sinner uh, in desperate need of grace. She's had five husbands. Now, that is, that's kind of crazy, right? This woman is kind of like the Elizabeth Taylor of Sikar, right? She's gone through all of these men, and now she's living with a guy who isn't even her husband, and her desire seems to be to constantly have security in a, in a man. And Jesus brings that up. He says, yeah, go get your husband. Right in the midst of this conversation about water, because not only does he want to highlight the spiritual reality, he wants to highlight what she needs. But what I love about this is Jesus, even though he points that out, he doesn't insult her. He doesn't humiliate her. He doesn't say, lady, why am I even talking to you? You're dirty. You're sick. He says, go get your husband and come back. Yeah, you don't, you don't have one, right? You've had five. Now you're with another guy, probably because nobody else will marry you. But he doesn't humiliate, but he doesn't pull back from the truth. He expects her life to have challenges and messes because she doesn't yet have the grace of God on her life. Imagine if you went home at Thanksgiving, you're sitting around with your family and your parents begin to talk and they say, "Uh, we have something we need to talk to you about. You go, what's that? They go, well, about 20 years ago, uh, you did some things that really frustrated us. You go, really? Uh, what were those? Well, uh, you had no bladder control, right? Uh, we always, always had to clean up after you. We'd give you food, you'd spit it back at us. And that, that made me angry, right? Uh, you, would, you would play with stuff, you'd just throw it all over the floor. And uh, son, you, ne- you need to leave now. You need to go. <laughs> this relationship is over. Well, that would be ridiculous, right? Why? Because you were a baby, right? You expect babies to make messes. You expect it. And your parents love you nonetheless. And they went into that relationship uh, determined to love you even though you were messy and you were hard work and they didn't get a lot of sleep. Okay? Uh, What Jesus is calling us to is to say, yeah, I I absolutely expect that when I engage with the world, there are going to be messes and challenges and sin." It doesn't mean I shy away from calling it out, but it means even as I'm engaging with these men and women, I point them to the source of grace in life. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't shame her. Instead, he says, I can clean this up. And that's what we are called to do. He's full of grace and he's full of truth at the same time. And then ultimately what he does is he he loves her even when she's a sinner. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, 
Not once we were clean. Not once we were all better. He died for us. So Jesus doesn't discriminate on the basis of how bad the sins are. But instead he says, anyone who will come can have life. And he backed it up by dying. And then in the final analysis, what he does is he points her back to him. Always points people to Jesus himself and the solution to her dilemma. The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Notice what he does. The woman kind of tries to change the subject, right? Doesn't want to talk about her sex life a whole lot with Jesus, okay? So she begins to change the subject. She says, I noticed something. You're a prophet. Uh, Speaking of prophets, some people say we need to be worshiping in Jerusalem. Some people say we can worship here, Mount Gerizim, which was a mountain in Samaria. The reality is that the Jews were right. There was only one appropriate place at that time to worship God, and it was in the temple. Okay? Jesus answers that question, but he says, look, the day is coming where that really doesn't matter. What's going to matter is, does the Spirit of God live in you? And do you understand the truth of who I am? And that is how you're going to worship God. Notice this, Jesus answers her question, even though it's a red herring, right? Designed to pull him off track from what he had pinpointed a moment ago about her life. He answers that question, but then he says, but the reality is what you need is to know me. I'm the one who offers you the ability to worship. And as we're sharing the message of Jesus Christ with those around us, I think often uh, people will try to raise kind of red herrings. Well, what about all the hypocrites? Uh, What about the fact that the earth seems to be older than some people think it is, right? Uh, What about the issue of homosexuality? What about this? What about that? I love what Jesus does is he gives a quick, short answer, and then he says, but the issue is this. Do you know me? Because if you don't, all of these side issues really don't matter. They're important. We can talk about them. But what really matters is, do you know me? And he points her back to the source of life. So we see Jesus here pursue, see her as a real person, made in the image of God who needs him, filled with grace and truth, and then he points her directly to the message that he offers life. Um, I don't know kind of where everybody is in here this morning. It may be that you find yourself, as you read this, resonating with that woman who came to the well. You're looking at your life and you go, yeah, uh, my life is kind of a mess. Like if you knew the stuff that was going on, you probably wouldn't want me in here. Or maybe you just feel like, I don't really know God. And maybe it is that you don't. Maybe you don't yet have a relationship with God. And the message for you, the only message you really need to hear this morning is this, that uh, Jesus Christ, the same man who loved and cared for this woman, he loves and he cares for you so much that he gave his life so you could have eternal life. Because apart from him, you and I are destined for hell because of our sin and disobedience. Yet Jesus died in our place and he offers forgiveness and eternal life if you trust in him for it. For those who do know Jesus Christ, 
the message is simply this. Can we open our eyes to the realities around us, see the spiritual realities around us, and then say, God, I want to be a part of bringing men and women to know you. And maybe one day God will call you to do that halfway across the world, but I know he's calling you and me to do that right now. Right now, in your classes, in your dorms, at work. And it doesn't mean you have to walk into work on Monday morning with a stack of tracts and start throwing them at people, right? What it means is you just open your eyes and you look for connections with men and women. And you help them understand who Jesus is, what he's done for them, and how they can have life. That's what we're called to do. And some conversations may lead directly to the gospel message. Some, it may take several conversations. I had a discussion even just this past week. Uh, our car was broken down, and so I was getting a shuttle to and from this car shop here in town. And I was talking with this guy and kind of trying to see where the Lord would lead it. And uh, it didn't end up leading directly to the gospel message. Tried to get there and shut down several times. And yet I trust that God has that young man in his hands. On the other hand, a week and a half ago, I got into a discussion with somebody on campus and it led straight to the message of the gospel. And so the application is not that you need to go out and we're going to give you a little checklist and you've got to say, uh, next week, there's going to be 100 people I've told about Jesus, right? But the application is this. Do what Jesus did and constantly be on the alert for opportunities to share the message of Jesus Christ because these are eternal realities and eternal individuals that we're dealing with day in and day out. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and uh, act upon the reality that the men and women around us uh, need you. Some know you, but many do not. And I pray that we would preach and proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ who paves the way to eternal life so we can know you. God, forgive us for the times we've been selfish or weak or afraid. Father, we know there will be more of those, but we rely upon your grace. And we ask that you would make us effective in your service. We love you, God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.